Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reese Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Hello. Today, I interview Patrick Minot, who is this amazing researcher in the field of neuro AI, which is the intersection of neuroscience and artificial intelligence. And this has been kind of a theme of this podcast is like trying to understand, um, yeah, the intersection of those two fields, how the brain works and how AI works and what we can, what they can learn from each other. And so Patrick is just full on deep in that world. And, and he's, um, I think the crucial bit, which is really curious and exciting today is, you know, we chat about a recent piece they wrote on with brains on demand, which is this idea that as we get better and better at uh, modeling at for, for AI to model the brain, that we're going to be able to just kind of like have this downloadable click brain on demand and that that thing will use it for um, for testing content. We'll use it for for testing health interventions. Uh, we'll use it for all those kinds of things. And uh, long term, that will be hopefully good for humanity to um be able to test things and how their impact on us um, with uh, without necessarily using humans. And so there's obviously some negatives to that too, but I think it's really cool to see Patrick's perspective on how we'll create these brains on demand and, and how they'll be used. So with that, thanks for uh, listening as always <laughs> and enjoy the episode with um, today with Patrick. Bye. Hello, Reese's Pieces. I'm Reese, the co-founder of Root, and welcome to The Reese Show. The century is a turning point in human history, and I'm here to help you navigate it. I hope you come away with a new understanding of the scientific, technological, and societal trends that are poised to radically reshape our world, and how you can work with those trends to become a live player in building a solar punk future. And today, I'm excited to chat with Patrick Minot. Patrick is a neuroscientist and AI researcher. He's been a data scientist at Google and a research scientist for brain-computer interfaces at Facebook, and he's really concentrated on neuro-AI, this intersection between AI and the brain. Patrick, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, excited to dive in. And I think, you know, Patrick is Patrick has a couple brilliant pieces on um, his website and XCore Consulting about just this intersection of neuro AI. And so um, and so the goal for the listeners today is kind of help you all understand, like, how we're using the brain to understand AI and also more recently, how we're using the AI to understand the brain and then finally how that will impact our daily lives. So with that, I kind of want to start, Patrick, and say, like, what has been the history of neuro AI? Um, what is it and what has been like the history of the field? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's a fascinating history. And these two fields have always been intertwined with each other. So um, and the example I like to, to, to give to people is uh, NeurIPS, which is the most you know, famous, the biggest conference in, in artificial intelligence is neural information processing systems. It's actually a neuroscience and artificial intelligence uh, conference at the start. Uh, but right now it's blown up to be essentially 95% artificial intelligence. And there's just a tiny bit of, uh, of neuroscience in it. Um, but from the very early inklings uh, of, uh, of these ideas about artificial intelligence, uh, people have been inspired by questions about the brain uh, so we can talk about the perceptron you know which was this uh this invention uh of a simple you know linear uh feature detector followed by a threshold function which was inspired by these studies of um, how neurons integrate their inputs and, and fire up after a threshold um, but i think the most famous example is really that of convolutional neural networks 
Um, so in the 50s and 60s, um, these two folks at, uh, at Harvard Medical School, uh, David Hubel and, and Torsten Weasel, did some really seminal studies in the visual cortex. So they were the first to put an electrode in visual cortex and to figure out what neurons do there. Um, it seems like vision is, is really this... Uh, um, this seamless uh, thing to us. It just happens naturally. You know, I look at your face and I'm like, oh, that's Reese. <laughs> um, but uh, it's a complicated series of um, of computations that happen inside the brain. And at the time, we really had no idea uh, how this, uh, you know, this ability to recognize people in different lightings and different conditions, maybe even like somebody that you haven't seen in 10 years, like you still recognize them even though they've aged. Um and, and maybe they have a belly and, <laughs> and so on and so forth. Um, so nobody really knew how, how that, uh, that actually worked in the brain. And so they were able to show that you have these neurons in primary visual cortex, which we call the simple and the complex cells. So the simple cells essentially integrate information from, directly from the eye and uh, essentially make out patterns of, let's say, uh, light and dark. And so they're able to, to determine whether, for instance, there's a, there's a bar uh, that's like a dark bar that's moving in, um, in the visual field in a given spot. And uh, they were also able to find these other neurons, which were the, called the complex cells. And so these complex cells uh, are able to detect, let's say, dark bars, white bars, uh, uh, dark, dark light edges or light dark edges. So all these combinations thereof, as long as they have the same orientation in a given spot in the visual field. And so what they inferred from, from the fact that you have these two kinds of neurons is that, you know, one of them must be fed into the other. So there was kind of this hierarchical um, computation that was happening where you have this selectivity operation, which is followed by a pooling operation, they call it. And so later on, people, you know, looked at this and it was sort of like very interesting that we're trying to do visual recognition in, um, in computers. And they were inspired by this research to create first the Neocognitron, which was Fukushima in, uh, in Japan in the late 70s, and later the convolutional neural nets. We're talking about Lynette and Jan LeCun, uh, who worked on this stuff in the late 80s and early 90s. And so we, what you really added to the mix is the ability to essentially instantiate this idea of selectivity and pooling, and then selectivity and then pooling and selectivity and pooling. And what if you add backprop to that so that you can actually train the uh, the weights uh, in a way that would allow you to solve a task. So the task in this case was recognizing um, digits, and that was the famous, uh, <laughs> inspired by the famous MNIST task, but was actually used uh, in the end by the uh, uh, the United States Post Postal Service for recognizing zip codes that were written uh, by hand back in the day. Yeah, and so that you know, eventually inspired the modern deep learning revolution. You know, that famous moment in 2012 where that team at the University of Toronto with, uh, uh, with Jeff Hinton and uh, Alex Kruzewski uh, were able to get to completely trounce the competition in, uh, in solving uh, ImageNet. Um, did something like 25% better than, than state of the art and show that like, hey, this, this thing that we have now, CNNs, you know, it's not... It's not a toy like deep learning has arrived, so you better watch out. 
And yeah. so we've seen like this kind of like crosstalk in between these two fields. Like, wow, isn't it, isn't it incredible? First of all, like, let's just like, let's just stop for a second. And to think that something which is inspired by the brain, you know, could, you could instantiate in the computer and then you could do the kinds of things that, uh, that humans can do. I mean, it's, it's incredible that this is possible at all. Yeah. I love that. I think that, I mean, I love that it's like, it is crazy that, I mean, we take it for granted, but I mean, I mean, obviously 50 years ago or a hundred years ago, if you said, I mean, a hundred years ago, definitely, but even 50 years ago, if you said, Hey, these random new little computer things that are popping up, we'll be able to use them to actually, um, do USPS, uh, zip codes. And they'll, they'll be able to look at all these, um, uh, they'll be able to look at all these letters and numbers and like to actually determine what they are. It's like, wow, that is a, and it's cool to hear also like the, um, you know, the, the, yeah, neurips. I never thought that neurips was a combination of, um, you know, neural stuff and then AI stuff. Um, it's interesting too, cause I think there's like a, um, the, the selectivity and then the pooling and the CNNs, the convolutional neural networks. I imagine kind of, um, a CNN, there's, there's recurrent neural networks and then there's convolutional neural networks. Is that right? And are the CNNs, do they both have like, and I guess there's just like pure ones. There's CNNs, there's RNNs, and then there's ones that like don't do any. Um, or what's the difference between CNNs and RNNs? <laughs> yeah, and then there's transformers. I think is and the third one that you're yeah. thinking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, it's interesting because these kinds of architectures were really you know set up uh, to solve different kinds of problems. So you know when RNNs uh, came about, really the kinds of problems that people were interested in solving were. Things about time series, uh, for instance, so it would make a lot of sense that you would have you would look over a big window of time and you know figure out what happened in the past, and then somehow find like a good representation to accumulate all of this all of this stuff over time, and then do predictions based off of that in kind of a recurrent manner. But uh, interestingly, now uh, you know neuroscientists are are using these different kinds of, uh, of neural networks to model different parts of the brains. Uh, and so, which, which I think, uh, you know, comes down to like just some models are kind of more diffeomorphic or like slightly more isomorphic to the, to certain parts of the brains than, uh, than others. And, um, so if you'd like, I can get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's do that in a second. But I think so. It sounds like there's a yes. Yeah, so there's like the um, and this the ability to do the selectivity and the pooling where you have selectivity, which is the uh, that's like determining whether the thing the that's I think of it as like maybe a simple feature detector or whatever, where you have like a a line like this and then a line like this, and you're able to determine whether the thing is uh, the neurons. You'll be like, oh, is this like a horizontal line or a vertical line? And then the pooling is where you like take those into aggregation, and say like that's an eye, and then you take. And then that eye then gets pushed over to the less selectivity side where it's like, we have an eye. Now it's like combine that with some other stuff to then do some more pooling. Is that how selectivity and pooling kind of co-evolve or how does that work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> you can think about, uh, about a, uh, a real situation in which you'd like to have uh, information which is invariant to the sign of the edge. So uh, I have a, uh, a dark IKEA uh, bookshelf behind me. And so if I place my hand, you know, in front of this bookshelf, I'm going to see the outline of my hand. And so that outline, as you can see, you know, the, the top, uh, my top fingers, uh, I can see, uh, you know, a dark pattern at the top and a light pattern uh, at the bottom. But, you know, if I just, you know, change things this way, I get the opposite pattern. Or if my fingers are against, you know, a white book, uh, which is uh, in the back, then I, I get the opposite uh, pattern. 
right? And yet my hand still exists in all these cases. Like what I really want is like a way to detect that this hand, my fingertips, you know, exist. And because these are real edges, which are defined by differences in depth, right? So these are like uh, what you might call intrinsic edges. So they're not going to go away. Um, and so they might be very useful for, uh, for recognition. And so what I'd like is essentially to be able to, uh, to detect the, the presence or absence of this edge, regardless of whether the contrast is positive or the contrast is negative, right? Uh, whereas a more basic feature detector uh, would really only work with one kind of lighting or like one kind of arrangement of the thing that you're trying to detect against uh, a background. And that's intrinsically less robust. Like I said, you know, you can do recognition of a familiar face, whether that familiar face is in, so I'm Canadian, so I'm going to use like seasons-based uh, metaphors. <clears throat> Obviously, it's not going to work as well in California. Uh, but, you know, if you meet them in the winter, uh, they're going to be against like a very white background, you know, presumably, or maybe like a, like a slushy background uh, if it's uh, the shoulder seasons. Uh, if you meet them uh, in the fall, it's going to be like maybe against like these like red leaves. Um, and it's going to be very different again in the summer. And yet people's identities don't change. So it's this like fundamental problem that, uh, that you want to solve. You want to be able to recognize things in an invariant fashion, despite the fact that the world keeps changing and what it is to be a thing can change. So if you just look at the raw patterns that fall on your eye, they're just like hopelessly entangled with all of these uh, external causes of variation, which don't matter in the end for the recognition. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, so, so is a what is it? So selectivity. I'm um, so like, what is the selectivity side, and what is the pooling side? <laughs> what are those words? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So uh, the selectivity is to say, um, so for instance, I have a pattern of light against dark in uh, a horizontal arrangement, right? So one's on top of the other. So that's a selectivity operation. The way that you can do that is basically you get uh, a bunch of neurons which. Uh, light up or have uh, positive responses when they see light at the top and positive responses when they see dark at the bottom, for instance, right? And then you can add to that a threshold operation. So the threshold operation is also inspired by the operation of the brain, which has, um, so, you know, neurons, when you put uh, electricity in them, uh, they don't do anything until you reach like a certain threshold of activation. And when they reach that threshold of activation, they have this instantaneous or kind of instantaneous response, uh, which is called um, a spike or an action potential that then propagates down the, uh, the axon. But the important, is that the, the, the important thing is that there's a threshold. And so anything below that doesn't cause an activation. Anything above that causes an activation. There's a small zone in which, you know, things are a little bit stochastic. And um, so uh, you can combine this selectivity for like this specific set of patterns uh, with a certain threshold. So, you know, you only fire like whenever there's uh, a certain amount of the stuff that you're looking for. And then you say like, this pattern is okay, but this other pattern, which is the exact inverse, that's also okay, right? So then you can add that in. And, and this third pattern, which is kind of the same, but slightly different, that also counts. 
and this fourth pattern and so forth. And so with that, you can accumulate inside of the of, of this neuron, like this ability to respond to a lot of different um, patterns which correspond to the same thing. Great. Um, and so that's the pooling side. That's the pooling side. Okay, and great, so great. maybe there's a there's another like metaphor which I think is uh, is pretty useful, um, which is when you reach like high level cortex, you have these neurons which respond to whole parts of faces, right, or even like whole faces. And so maybe the way that you want to uh, to generate a neuron, which is uh, the, the Patrick neuron, uh, is maybe there's a first there's a lower level neuron that just responds to Patrick's uh, profile, and then Patrick, 15 degrees uh, looking to the right and 30 degrees looking to the right and uh, 100% like <laughs> looking to the right and uh, and essentially like just stitch all of these different views mm-hmm. of the same person together until you're selective for Patrick in any sort of, um, of head rotation position. Yeah, love it. Love it. That's right. Yeah. And thank you for just like, yeah, double clicking on that. Where it's like, yeah, you have the selectivity for any given pattern. Like, oh, great. I'm seeing Patrick. This is Patrick in the front. This is Patrick 90 degrees. This is Patrick 90 degrees the other way. Okay, cool. We can pull those all together to get a, you know, a meta neuron or whatever. That's like, um, oh, this is like the Patrick neuron. And so that boom, we get Patrick. Okay. That makes sense. And so, and the cool thing I think is that, yeah, we had for so long, we were doing, I want to kind of, you know, go to like the middle part of the story now, where it's like, we have this history, obviously of like, um, of 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 AI and kind of like pulling AI starting to pull these ideas from the brain. Um, but now what we're doing is we're kind of it feels like we're kind of going the other way um, where AI is kind of um, where we're like learning using AI to learn about the brain or using AI to kind of model the brain. And so you call this like brains on demand. You could call it like brains as a service. Um, so tell us more like what no, is that's this- uh, that's much better because that spells out bass, right? Bass, baby. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, and so tell us more about this. Um, what is a brain this on idea. demand or brain as a service? How, are, how does this work? Yeah. So, uh, of course, these, uh, some, of, some uh, neural network, uh, artificial neural network architectures were really inspired by the architecture of the brain. And so eventually people like came around and said, like, wait, are these actually like the brain? And so the way that they, uh, they looked at this, this was, the seminal research in this field was done around 2014, so two years after this uh, this ImageNet moment. Um, there were some inklings that actually these networks that we trained in silico to solve these tasks with pictures and, and bits and computers, they were actually a lot more like the brain than we originally gave them credit for. Um, so, you know, originally we were like, well, maybe we're just like, thinking about these as metaphors for the brains and they turn out to be good because they have compositionality, which is very important uh, for, uh, for artificial intelligence, but maybe they're not really like the brain. So the surprising thing is that, uh, you know, the TLDR is that they're, they are kind of like the brain <laughs> in really interesting ways. And so, you know, maybe the first thing to, 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 to get out there is like, how do you even compare a brain and a neural network? those two things don't seem like they should be comparable in any sort of meaningful way. And, um, and so the, the technique that people have, uh, have used over the years is uh, to use a battery of stimuli. So if I present to you like a thousand different stimuli, um, I can measure from your brain, from you know, your visual cortex, your early visual cortex, intermediate visual cortex, infrotemporal cortex, your hippocampus, whatever, uh, using... MRI, ECOG, uh, single electrode recordings. There's a lot of different ways that you can uh, record information from the brain. And I can get like a big 
basically like a big matrix of uh, of responses, right? So one uh, one vector per image corresponding to different neurons, different voxels, um, different uh, different measurements. And then I can do exactly the same to a neural network. I can just present, quote unquote, to this uh, neural network. Uh, here is a series of images. What is There's your response? Cats, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the important thing here is that we're not necessarily interested in the last part of the neural network. So as you know, something like uh, like a modern uh, deep neural network is deep because it has a lot of layers, um, and so what we usually care about is the intermediate layers um, because the the last layer is not so interesting it just you know pushes it onto different classes like this kind of dog versus that kind of dog um, but the intermediate layers are where you know quote unquote the real action um, is and so uh, with this we get basically two matrices two matrices corresponding to the responses of the brain to uh, a battery of stimuli the responses of an artificial neural network to this battery of stimuli, and we can compare them. And lo and behold, we see like really interesting things pop out. So the first thing is that, you know, you can try like an untrained network versus a trained network. And a trained network looks more like the brain. You can try networks which are better at solving the task, which are better at, at, uh, at ImageNet uh, versus networks which are worse at ImageNet. And those that are better at the task that humans can do also happen to be more brain-like. At least it was the case uh, up to about five years ago. <clears throat> I should say because there's people going to be uh, going to be yelling in the comments. Um, we can look at uh, the hierarchy. So the brain has this. Uh, the, the visual cortex has this amazing um, organization where it's really organized in in, in these layers and these areas which project uh, onto one another. So you would think that so. You know, the way that this works is uh, you go from the retina to the, uh, to the thalamus and then eventually the primary visual cortex to V2, V4, and then different subparts of infrotemporal cortex, uh, area IT. And so you can look at uh, a deep neural network to see like, okay, well, is V1, cor does V1 correspond more to lower, la to, to lower uh, layers of, uh, of this artificial neural net? What about V2? What about V4? What about IT? And what you see is a real recapitulation of what happens inside of the visual cortex. So the lower layers of the uh, of this artificial neural network correspond to lower layers of this deep neural network, which is uh, sorry of this uh, of this brain. So it just uh, it just seems like that's uh, the smoking gun. Yeah. Um, like, that, oh, wow, these things are really like kind of like each other in a much deeper way that we had anticipated originally. Yeah, I mean, that's great. It's a, it's an interesting, um, hey, it's also cool to know, I love talking with researcher types because you're always like, hey, here's this 24 or 2012 paper was the um, original kind of, you know, deep learning Hinton paper or whatever. And then in 2014 was this original paper. So you just knowing the dates and the, the, the titles of the authors is just like classic. And I like that. It's also interesting. I mean, it is crazy in thinking about, and just for the listeners, yeah, it's like you have, yeah, obviously these V1, V2, V4 things are these different like hierarchical, like deep layers of the brain where you have these like cortical columns 
or whatever that have that fire on different things. And so, and, and what Patrick is saying is that, yeah, there's um that kind of evolved thing within our biological environment where our brain, because the world has hierarchy in it. So you're kind of, our brain then like, rep, you know, was like, oh, there's hierarchy. I can be a hierarchical as a brain. And then similarly, if you're an AI and you're trying to like determine stuff and you're trying to be an image netter or whatever, and you're trying to like look at and determine cats, it makes sense that you'd like have these different hierarchical layers um, in, in, um, in order to do that. So that is, I mean, it makes sense. It's, it's also kind of crazy that there's this convergent evolution. Um, yeah, so, it makes sense with hindsight. <laughs> yeah, oh, totally. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah. And so, 100% and so, hindsight. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because it also would totally make sense if it was some random other crazy AI way. But so do you think, um, so we have these, so we were able to match them to each other. And we we're able to like say, hey, we, there's this like new neural net that kind of looks like a brain. Um, and so tell us like what, like, I guess um, oh, a couple questions. Here. I guess the first is tell us what we can do with these um, uh I guess actually my first question is how close is this thing actually to a brain yet? Like we have this idea of like, oh, we can just like create these like brains and like push them around the world and they'll, they'll be able to like trigger on stimuli and stuff like that. But are we, are we actually close to this right now? Or like where, how close are these brains to being like real brains, you know? So not very, uh, but, <laughs> and I'll qualify by not very, <laughs> um, but I think that we have to look at the general uh, trajectory of uh, of these models, and you know, maybe we can compare it to, uh, for instance, like Dali One. Dali One didn't work very well. <laughs> if you look at the original post from uh, from OpenAI, so Dali is, of course, a, a generative AI that can generate like whatever kind of uh, of image that you want based off of a text prompt. Um, it the original versions didn't work very well. Uh, even like two years ago, just the fusion models didn't work very well. And now we're at the point where we're, you know, we've, we've reached a point where I personally just use Dali to generate images on my blog post. I've forgotten how to use Photoshop if I ever didn't know how to, do, how to use it. Um, so there can be a, a very fast trajectory that comes from scaling current approaches to, you know, larger data sets or more brain areas in, in our case. Um, so that, that's kind of my, my caveat, but I, I do realize that, you know, these, um, artificial neural networks are not really like brains. So there's a bunch of little things. There's a bunch of big things, uh, that we can say about them. Um, so for instance, uh, you know, brains have this special rule that there's positive neurons and negative neurons. There's excitatory neurons, which have certain patterns of connection. And then there's inhibitory neurons, which have certain patterns of connections. And they have to be wired up in special ways inside the brain. And, um, you know, artificial neural networks don't have those kinds of constraints. So that's called the Dale's law. But if we wanted to, you know, we could create an artificial neural network, which embodies Dale's law. Um, and it's, is, uh, is written up in this particular way. It's just that we haven't found it to be useful for industrial applications of AI. And so if we wanted, we could do that. We could add topography. You were talking about recurrence. So we know that the visual cortex has recurrence, right? So it's not that there's just a feed forward pass from my eye to my thalamus to the visual cortex, to, to the primary visual cortex is that there's recurrent activity in the primary visual cortex that happens over time. And then even talk from the highest level parts of the visual cortex down to the primary visual cortex, right? So we have these very simplified systems diagrams that we, you know, canonically use in, um, uh, 
uh, in in the field of neuro AI that we know are not like really realistic if we look from uh, from the anatomy. But these things can be fixed. You know, there's no like a priori reason why you're like, oh, well, this approach can't possibly work ever because you don't have these things. It's more like we're adding like a little bit more, you know, meat on the bone, so to speak, uh, of these models, which are originally just metaphors for the brain. But if we keep adding more and more um, biological reality, you know, they will become ever more brain-like. Um, so they're not very realistic, but the devil's in the details. And there's probably like seven or eight different low-hanging fruit that we can use. Uh, and I list them, I, I think, in my, uh, in my blog post that we, can, uh, that we can use to make them more uh, biologically realistic. Yeah, great. Yeah, and as as a note for folks, there's, I mean, the blog post that um, uh, that Patrick is referencing is, yeah, this, uh, there's one on um, A16Z's future, which is AI's next frontier, brains on demand. And then there's one on his website too, the what's the end game of neuro AI um, at xcorr.net. And so I'll link both of those in the show notes. Um, and they're both very excellent. It is, so is there a, Patrick, is there like a, um, yeah, so, so what I'm hearing is, yeah, there are these pieces. And when I was chatting with someone um, uh, who works at um, what is it? one of the random AI, neuro AI adjacent things, um, he was talking about how, yeah, the brains obviously use these RNNs, um, these recurrent, there's recurrence happening. There's this like, um, and um, or I always get, what, tell me, what's the difference between an RNN and a C? I get RNN and CNN confused, a convolutional versus recurrence. I guess recurrence to me feels like there's some kind of feedback loop. While convolutional, I don't really know what the what. What's, what's right, me? right, right. So, uh, so it's really interesting, actually, the history of the of uh, of these things because you know some of the choices that were made architecturally for these different architectures, they were just because they had these constraints. They were living in a world where they didn't have a ton of data and they didn't in the have old a ton times, of in, the, in the before times, you know, in the before in the times, ages. you know, you couldn't just, uh, you can just like push a button and then, uh, and then you spend several days uh, figuring out your NVIDIA drivers uh, situation. No, <laughs> it was much, uh, much more complicated even than that. Um, I think that the AI apocalypse has no chance of happening anytime soon just because, you know, driver issues. Driver is issues. really the thing they'll, <laughs> they'll run into. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. <laughs> nice. um, uh, anyways, more, more seriously. So CNNs are... So there are, are a few uh, things which are um, really characteristics of CNNs. One is that you... Uh, you do the same operation over different areas of space. So that is the quote-unquote convolution. So a convolution, it uh, refers to a mathematical operation in which you essentially like slide this operator, which is like this mixed multiplication and addition, over uh, this two-dimensional or three-dimensional field. And so the convolution says basically uh, take the same operation and apply it to different places in this image. The advantage of that compared to, you know, an arbitrarily connected neural network is that you have way less parameters. Because when you say, you know, what's going on here in the top left is the same as the thing that's happening in the bottom right, uh, you've just removed, you know, a degree of freedom in in the way that you build your your neural net, your your neural network, and that was historically very important in order to get these really good uh, results. 
when back in the day when I mean, like we're talking like 386 days, right? Uh, this is, <laughs> it was a long time ago, right? When they uh, when uh, when they did this stuff. So I, I don't know if you remember the games that uh, that were there back then, but it wasn't uh, like a paragon of. Uh, like have the think best about graphics, like yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly like think about like Super Mario Brothers versus like whatever is the big, uh, the big game Scrolls, these days I don't know the kids whatever yeah the Dark Gen Souls are playing. yeah <laughs> Dark <laughs> Souls Seven or, or exactly, whatever it is exactly. uh, so it sounds like it, yeah. well thank you for the reminder though yeah that CNNs are the things where you're taking some kind of like Gaussian blur or whatever you're or you're making some kind of thing and you're you have an image and you have your little three by three. And you're kind of moving it across the whole image. And as you're saying, that's very helpful because then you don't have to, you've, you're saying, hey, we're just going to apply the same thing. That's going to, we're going to take these, this set of nine pixels. We're going to maybe even turn it into one pixel. And then we're going to do that across the whole kind of thing. And then when you do that once and you do it over and over and over again, and then you get some kind of output at the end where you say, oh, this is a cat or whatever, you know, after you, after you train the, um, the little square, the three by three um, to, and, and versus RNNs, which are, the recurrence bit where you're trying to understand yeah. the time series thing where you're trying to like it was like the pre-transformer thing where you're trying to understand some kind of text and you have to like look backwards and you have to be like what was said five like two minutes ago or like backwards in the sentence where you're like was it was there a he there was it a she or whatever <laughs> should i use um him it, it's a, okay got it got it got it thank you for um just in my mind i was like rnn and cnn they're so similar so so back to the main yeah, yeah no it's uh they're they're literally like one at a distance they're uh, one so at a distance uh, as a simpleton like me exactly so so back to this <laughs> brains on demand brains as a service thing so tell me about so i guess it might be actually helpful for for the the listeners to kind of imagine i think there's this really brilliant um idea that you have which is we have this like we have a lot of with generative ai we've we've the 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 supply of images is go is a lot you can just like produce tons and tons of stuff um push it out there in the world it's now instead of a human needing to create it nope it's just like any it's just being created at mass and mass production but the question is what is the demand side and so it's like and so the demand is like where will all these things live in the world and um and I think that the this great idea that you have is that there's instead of like needing to test it and A B test it on like, oh, is is Reese gonna like this redder image or this like bluer image? Instead we can just like spin up these brains on demand and have them be the things that like do the testing to see which images will be more or less helpful. So kind of tell us more about like this like long-term future of how these brains on demand will be used from like a market perspective to like determine um, to do the testing before the humans need to, instead of the, having the humans test subjects, we can just test it on the brains. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess the picture that I paint in this blog post is that, you know, eventually these uh, in silico versions of the brain will be good enough to do practical things. You know, they can be used wherever human perception might be used for some applications whether uh, the CNN or, you know, your artificial neural network is aligned to a brain doesn't really matter. So I'll give you an example. If you're doing a self-driving car, there might be very good reasons why you don't want these two things to be aligned. Why? Because we know that humans have all of these issues, <laughs> uh, you know, because they have these, uh, these, these squishy uh, brains. So they might not pay attention all the time. Uh, they have different resolution in the center of the eye versus the periphery, whereas for the car, maybe you want it to have high resolution in the periphery. So for some applications, whether you your artificial neural network is really uh, equivalent to the brain, doesn't really matter or doesn't matter as much. 
However, where it might matter is when it's applications in human health or the person that's going to see the stuff that you're trying to make ultimately will be a human because they're obviously like going to be very sensitive to stuff that humans are sensitive to, <laughs> kind of by definition. Um, so for these kinds of applications, I think that these brains, these uh, artificial neural networks that we're building right now, which are aligned to human brains, uh, are going to be uh, absolutely important. And so they're kind of a baseline technology. And so I imagine a future in which you can download like this brain on demand in the same way that you can download like a transformer off of Hugging Face to do uh, natural language processing. That'll be like neither near or there. Right now, it takes like a lot of resources in order to be able to do that. Maybe there's 100 people that know how to do it uh, in the world. But you can imagine a future world in which, you know, it's completely commoditized. And, you know, there's a million people that like the million people that have access to Dolly 2 or Midjourney or, uh, or Stable Diffusion. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's like everybody right now we're getting like, we're quote unquote democratizing access to the creator tools, um, Dolly, Stable Diffusion, et cetera. But in the future, and then we've also democratized access to the underlying infrastructure through, you know, downloading a transformer through Hugging Face. And then in the future, yeah, we're going to have democratized the access to um, these models, these models of the brain where you're like, hey, there's like, if you want to pretend, you want like a, you want, you want a guy like Reese, you want like a rich white guy straight in America, tw- you know, 31 years, like, boom, like, here's just like, down- download him, you know, oh, um, you're making it sound much worse than it's going to be. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I guess it doesn't need to be based on like identities and stuff. And there'll be some, obviously, there are going to be a lot of uh, ethical and whatever issues around like thinking about how to like d- differentiate brains from each other. But I guess there's, and I guess the crucial bit, and I just love what you talk about how like some of the initial kickstart for this will be both health applications, but also I think like the advertising applications or advertising or just like media where it's like being able to, and tell us a little bit more about like this A B testing of like, you know, instead of um, testing on humans, this like testing of, of, of uh, on these brains on demand. So tell us a little bit more about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, if we look at generative AI, because I, I think it really is like the the kind of playbook for what might happen with, uh, with brains on demand, what we've seen is that uh, by and large, what they're used for, like some people use them for, for applications and, and creativity and to make like art shows and all sorts of wacky stuff. But by and large, uh, you know, the biggest applications, the biggest money maker is going to be to create content that it's going to be used for advertising and for getting, you know, eyeballs um, on people. And uh, especially in in places where people can't afford to have their own graphic designer or whatever. So if you're like under resource, you're an SMB, uh, small, medium business. And you want to, you know, create content for your web page or, or whatever, like having these tools available to you just makes it so much easier um, to, uh, to, to be able to, you know, have like a nice graphic identity, get people into your store and then sell your flowers or your, or your baguettes or whatever it is that, uh, that you sell. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot of the same stuff for, uh, for brains on demand. So, the first thing to, to, to think about, I, I really do think that the end game is to think about human health, right? Because if we can figure out a way to have uh, essentially what is an in silico version of the brain, then the obvious thing to do is to um, use that to create different kinds of quote unquote medications uh, or different kinds of, of training regimens that 
allow a person to, you know, overcome either like some psychiatric problem, uh, some, uh, or maybe they're actually doing fine and they just want to, you know, improve their cognition along some, uh, some access. Right. Um, so enhancement of the well, if you will. Um, so that's one way, but that's going to take a lot of time because there's regulations and, you know, you have to go to clinical trials and FDA and blah, blah, blah. So that takes at least seven years, you know, at the very least, it's going to take seven years. So we have to look first at consumer applications, which don't require all of this, you know, medical testing that those are the kinds of things that are going to create uh, real opportunities in the marketplace. And so I, I think that advertising is is probably like the number one uh, case scenario here, where right now uh, it's very difficult for the, the small guys, quote unquote, uh, to um, to compete in the marketplace, right? Because big companies just have access to marketing departments, even though they might fire them arbitrarily for some reason. Sorry, this is this is film at the time that there's many things happening on Twitter. So this is uh, <laughs> this is top of mind. Um, but they might have marketing departments. They can have illustrators. They can have like all of. Uh, they can have like statisticians that do A/B testing to figure out like which kinds of marketing materials or which organization of the web page creates uh, the, uh, the the best um, uh, the the best outcomes for uh, for the company. But if you're you know a small uh, fly by night startup and you have limited budget, like maybe you can't afford to do that. And so a lot of this stuff is done by field. And so I see that, uh, you know, if you have under 100 employees, probably you don't have the stat, the, the statisticians uh, on staff or the data scientists to really do very well-informed A-B testing. And you might not have either the traffic in order to do it. So what are you going to do? You know, like these bigger uh, companies, they have the budget and they have the, capa- the, the capability to optimize the heck out of everything. And you're just trying to compete. Um, so I think that, if we can bring that to these uh, to, to smaller companies, to startups that are like really trying to innovate, and I think it could be really interesting because it gives them a fighting chance in this kind of fight for attention, uh, if you will. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, and I think it's yeah. I think it will be. Um, I think yeah. It just it just feels like it's going to happen, and it feels like it's. Um, and it's interesting though the thing about the consumer angle versus the health angle, where it's like the regulations on the health side are good, and it's also like it's kind of sad that like. Um, in, in the end, like we might want more of those like, oh, like, like, let's like test out a bunch of different like mindfulness regimens or whatever and see how those like impact these brains on the man and like, oh, wow, these ones are impacted positively. Oh, great. Let's like have, you know, let's like give people those apps or whatever. But it's just like that might be there might be too much friction on the health side. And so what we do is then we go to the places where there's less friction, like on the consumer side. Um, and so that's kind of just like the, the, the first start for a lot of these things, which is, yeah, which is interesting. Uh, I want to, as we start to get into wrap mode here, tell me about like your, um, you're talking about how you're making a nomenclature for, for neuro AI. What, what, you know, you're making a glossary, a bunch of words. Tell us about that process and, and how that's going. Yeah. So I think that uh, it's a big tent. Uh, neuro AI can, uh, encompasses a bunch of different practices and it can be hard for even people in the field to uh, agree that they're all talking about the same thing. And so I think that there's like really like two ways to map out this, uh, this space. And there's kind of two axes that you care about. Um, the first is what's your home turf. So there's this principle in uh, people who are translators 
uh, and, and by that I mean like literal language translators, that they should translate into their uh, native language, right? So I'm French, I would do English to French. Uh, and, you know, presumably that would, uh, that would, you know, help like get the best uh, possible outcomes. If you're, you know, quote unquote native in a language, or if your area of application is really, you know, thing X, that allows you to better understand the market uh, conditions and to better understand the actual practice of implementing, uh, uh, of implementing things uh, in a way that can lead to the positive outcomes. So some people are centered in AI and other people are centered, their area of applications is narrow. And then the other axis is whether or not um, you are interested in neuro AI because you think that you're motivated by curiosity or you're motivated by applications. And so with that, you get like this two axis kind of thing uh, where, um, you know, in one corner, you can say like, I think that brains are really cool. <laughs> I think like nobody's going to deny that brains are cool. But uh, let's say that like that's your that, that's your primary like ethical positions. And I am going to use AI based tools in order to study the brain further and to further my understanding of this like incredibly mysterious thing that's all in our noggins that is responsible for all emotions and 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 everything that happens in our lives um on the other hand uh, other people might say well ai is useful in the sense that i think that uh, ai is my home ground i'm doing like production systems i can inspire by myself by things that are known in uh in neuro in order to help alleviate the drudgery of human existence, uh, of which there is much. Um, and, uh, and we've got uh, everything in between. So that includes, so if you look at the whole spectrum of, uh, of neuro AI, that can include things like mining neuro to find uh, uh, new AI, using neuro data to realign existing AI so that they're more human-like. You can have you can use AI as models of the brain, precisely do this kind of brains on demand thing that, um, uh, that I've been thinking about. Um, you can use AI models to really tune the next generation of brain computer interfaces. We didn't have time to get into brain computer interfaces, but that's, uh, it's definitely something I'm interested about. Or we can even use neural approaches to investigate the current artificial neural networks as though, uh, we're doing, um, the kinds of, uh, perception research that people have been doing for, uh, uh, for, for dozens of years now in, uh, in neuroscience. So there's a lot, there's a big space and I'm trying to put this all together and, uh, hopefully making a, a one-stop shop, a portal where people can, uh, can get this information. Uh, every time I talk to my statistician friends, uh, about, uh, the brains might be similar to, uh, to AI, I get, a lot of questions, and so I've decided to write it down, <laughs> write down the answer. <laughs> so you can just send them one link, which is great. Well, I'm, I'm really excited for that. I mean, it sounds like it's a great – I love a good two-by-two, two, and it makes sense that a neuro AI is both on research – or sorry, is, is a neuro on you know, – the brain on one side, the neuro, neuroscience on one side, AI on the other side, and then, yeah, the research and uh, to applied. And you can always just – it's a cool thing because then, like, anybody in that field can kind of, like, look at that map, and then they're like, oh, cool, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an applied um, – I'm an industry kind of applied uh, AI person. I can pull inspiration from any of the other three boxes. Um, so that kind of yeah. And what's a cool. and what is a map for? But to figure out where the stuff that is unmapped is, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. If you got like a big spot, like oh, maybe there's Greenland behind that. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> That's funny. Yeah, and then I want to do one final question here, which is um like a, a a lightning version of overrated and underrated. So I'm just gonna say whether something I'm gonna say a thing, and Oof. and then you exactly, and then you're gonna spend 15 seconds to say, hey, it's overrated or underrated, and here's uh, one sentence on why. Um, and so uh, the first one, and talking about BCIs, is Neuralink. Do you think that's overrated or underrated? Uh, I think it's about even. I think the technology is incredible, um, but the application area, it's a very small market, and the path to market is is, is really tough. Cool, cool tech, but tough uh, go-to-market. Um, what about, um, this is kind of a funny three-parter, what about EEG, fMRI, and um, PET scans? Uh, PET is, I don't think that it's overrated because it, yeah, for, uh, for studying the brain, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty wee sauce. Uh, the, uh, the, the quality of the images is, is, uh, is very low, but it is, uh, good to measure these, uh, metabolic, um, effects. Uh, and, uh, so it has a lot of applications actually in the, in the clinic. So neither, uh, fMRI, fMRI still has a lot of, of, uh, of fight within it. Um, there's this uh, research from uh, Alex Huth at the uh, University of Texas where they're able to decode um, people's silent speech. So in other words, like their like intent to speak in, like even though they don't like actually like uh, speak the thing uh, using fMRI. Uh, so uh, really incredible stuff. Um, that's also possible with MEG. EEG, I think, has to be very highly tuned for uh, for applications. Uh, people have tried over and over again to make it practical. It's a very mature technology. If it hasn't happened before, it's probably not going to happen now. So overrated. Great, great. Throwing shade on EEG. Great. Um, wow. <laughs> beautiful. Um, well, thank you again, Patrick, for the chat today and, and for kind of, you know, sharing this future about um, both, you know, how... We, yeah, we will eventually exist in this, you know, neuro AI future where these brains are on demand and, um, and then kind of just doing the, the good work of like mapping that space. I think that's really important kind of field building. So thank you for that. Um, for the listeners, yeah, definitely check out, um, Patrick, just a lot of cool writing on his website, xcore.net. That's xcorr.net. Um, so check that out. And then also Patrick's on Twitter at Patrick, that's P-A-T-R-I-C-K. And then Minot, French style, aka m-i-n-e-a-u-l-t patrick minot on twitter um anything else you want to say to the listeners today patrick uh no i mean it was really great uh talking to you uh glad we had the uh the chance to uh to catch up and uh hope yeah, to, uh, to talk again uh sometime yeah I'll, I'll definitely as you um i'm excited to to see the um definitely please send me the uh uh, or CC me on Twitter or whatever when you when you post the um the neuroai kind of uh, two by two in the 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 nomenclature market map uh, that seems amazing and um, yeah excited to stay in touch as as this field uh, emerges so thank you everybody for listening and goodbye thanks so much for listening today if you like the show please give us a five star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube and if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing smart ambitious divergent people come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.